Welcome to Mental Health and You. This podcast brings you the best information and advice from across the Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust. Every fortnight, we will hear from one of our specialist areas, be it school and parent support, the recovery college, well-being or research. with me on the research edition of Mental Health and You, Kath Pickles, who is CEO of Restitute, a community interest company set up to support those who care for survivors of sexual or violent crime. Hello, Kath. Hello. Now, I know you have been on the steering committee for Aspire, one of our young people research studies, which is setting about creating a positive psychology support package for parents and carers of children who have experienced stressful or upsetting experiences. More about that in a minute. And I want to talk to you also about our Researching Together network. But first, I want to hear more about Restitute. I know this is a very personal endeavour, and I wonder if you could explain the background to Restitute, why you set it up. Sure, no problem. We started Restitute after about um, a decade of caring for our daughter. She'd survived sexual abuse between the ages of eight and 11 and started to develop some really, really challenging behaviour. We knew nothing about the abuse at all. And it wasn't until she was about 13 that we got an inkling and it took until she was nearly 16 for there to end up being a full disclosure of what had happened. Um, and during that time she had some really challenging behaviours obviously she was very traumatised indeed we had problems with self-harm we had problems with overdose poor self-esteem bullying at school usual trauma responses but of course we had no idea at the time that what had caused the trauma Um, very early on there were suggestions of that it was trauma-based and of course we spent forever it would seem racking our brains trying to identify um what that trauma might be and had no idea so when it when we did find out um it was a shock but at the same time it wasn't this great disclosure and I think people often think that there will be a disclosure um which is an event and it's not it can take many years many months for people to actually um fully disclose absolutely everything that's happened to them um and in the meantime that can be incredibly difficult for carers so once my daughter started to recover a little bit we realized that the hours the weeks the months the very early mornings at two o'clock in the morning when you're trying to wait for her to get to sleep and you're sitting there bit looking on google for any clue any idea researching trying to find out the best support that we could get for her um we realised that we'd built up a huge depth of knowledge that wasn't easily available to anybody else. And that includes professionals, because, of course, professionals have very little idea about the 24-7. They might imagine they do, but they've really got very little idea about what the, the, of the 24-7 constant anxiety, the trauma, the guilt, the shame, the blame. Um, and we decided to use our knowledge and our experience and... Um, the fact that my daughter very bravely and had already started to talk about her own experience in the public domain already to use that to create um, Restitute, which we thought in the first year, this always makes me smile when I say it, we thought, right, so what we'll do 
is we'll, we did some research and development and that took about six months because it was really important that we made sure that what we wanted to create was going to work um, yeah. and that it wasn't already being done in anywhere else. So we thought we'll do that and then we'll do um, a nice little evaluation project because I've always been very interested in making sure that we had the research and the assessment and everything else in place because there's no point in trying to persuade people that what you're creating is any good if you haven't got that background knowledge. So I thought, right, nice little project, six to 12 families, support them in the following a model that we felt was going to work well based on lived experience, the service that we wish we'd had ourselves. And then COVID hit. Now, I don't think it had anything to do with COVID. I do think it has something to do with the way that professionals and um, organisations came together. Very much so. Um, because people were suddenly more accessible, they were more available, you didn't have to book an appointment three months in advance and then travel down to see them. So I was being included on calls um, around the whole COVID support network of how can we support families. So my nice little idea of an evaluation project of between six and 12 families and then presenting it to people and saying, look, doesn't this work well, went completely out the window. And in the last two and a bit years, we've supported over 100 families. Yeah, wow. I, can, I can see your face. Nobody else can see your face, but I can see your face going, oh, my word. Um, and and we're really proud of the work that we've achieved with them. Um, the really, the outcome, because we've always been very much active based. It's not just a listening service. It's about getting practical support. It's about getting the things that families actually need to get themselves going. Um, practical support, a one-to-one support worker who really becomes a bit like a bossy auntie or your best PA or someone really who is just there going, right, okay, you do this bit, I'll do this bit, let's meet in the middle and let's see how we get on. Um, Practical support, skips, garden clearances, things that stop people sitting on the bottom step that's, you know, playing Candy Crush because they're just overwhelmed, something to get people going. And that tackles the trauma and the um shame and the guilt and the blame because if you actually offer someone a practical personalized real thing like a skip or someone coming in and doing a deep clean in their house or changing light bulbs or helping someone with driving lessons that kind of thing what you're actually saying to them is you are not to blame you did not do this You should not feel guilt or shame. Society values you. Society sees the excellent work that you are doing to protect somebody who you are caring for through no fault of your own, often very unexpectedly. And that can be enough to really get families going again. I wasn't expecting skips and clearing of houses, actually. That's really interesting. So you're that practical like level is is proving to be, you know, really important. Absolutely. I think it it isn't it isn't it isn't the thing, if you like. It's the combination of the practical sport and the and and what that actually means to somebody. Because if I if I say to you, yeah, you know, I'm really sorry to hear about this. I'm really sorry this has happened. Nothing gets where they're faster than actually saying you deserve a service 
you deserve support than actually doing something. Yeah. 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 Um, and when you've had families who have very often um, battled for years to find the right service, yeah, one of the things that you do have to cut through is, and they have to trust you for a start. And for so many of our families, if they, you know, they've been offered this, they've been offered that. It's lasted three weeks and then people have backed off, you know, short-term interventions. That's never going to work with someone who is looking after someone who is suffering really, really significant trauma. So actually by doing, we create a, actually these guys are worth engaging with. These guys are worth talking to, they're worth trusting their opinion and, and their suggestions might be worth doing something with. So it's much, much more than just a skip. Right. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? No, it does. It does. I, I read an article about this recently and uh, the thing that struck me was that you can, by the sound of it, to a certain extent, predict the behaviour of a young person who's been through this trauma early on. Yeah. And I think one of the things perhaps was that, you you know, you didn't know that you could almost predict that. Um, can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I think it is unbelievably terrifying when you are living with someone who is who is um, struggling with trauma. Um and for us, we had no clue. Um, and eventually, of course, eventually we did. We found out, you know, about the, some of the predictors of young people who have suffered with trauma. Right. So poor mental health, drug and alcohol abuse, um, problems with friendships and relationships, further sexual exploitation or abuse, mental health problems, obviously, um, homelessness. Um, and of course, the prison population is littered with people who have survived trauma in in childhood. So we knew we didn't know any of that. Yeah, mm. we just so we were literally making it up as we went along. Um, and one of the things that that became most clear was that family breakdown was the biggest risk factor for children in this situation. Right. And I don't mean parents divorcing because actually, unfortunately, the reality of caring for some caring for anybody, but caring for someone particularly who is displaying challenging behaviour can put cracks on the strongest relationships. Yeah. I mean, a young person, 17, 18, up to 24, gaining insight, understanding that either their behaviour or their mental health issues or their disabilities is putting a massive strain on the family or lifestyle choices that they want to make which are dangerous and frightening to parents and other members of the family or actually finances because there's this benefits cliff edge that happens on a young person's 20th birthday which basically stops things like universal credit if the young person is edu in education and puts all the benefits over onto the young person. Someone who is very impulsive, some very often that's another trait of people who live with trauma, yeah. impulsive, who have often missed out on the life skills of what's happened with, um, you know, in the 13, 14, 15, the basic understanding of budgeting, the basic awareness of what it takes to run a household. And all the finances transfer over to the young person who really doesn't want to share they still need huge amounts of care, but the family income has dropped and yeah. quite often dropped by, by a really significant amount. Um, 
So the parent or the loved one has to go out to work and that produces huge anxiety because they can't safely care for their loved one. Um, And very often that is when the families break down because there just simply isn't the finances for allow somebody to carry on caring safely. So our most vulnerable people, our most damaged young people are living in supported accommodation or in um, shelters or hostels and those kinds of things. When you actually drill down to why are they there, it is because a combination of family finance, there being no money in the system to be able for them to be able to um, be cared for within the family home and challenging behaviour and those kinds of things. So it's just like this perfect storm. Yeah. And when you think about it, if you've got an 18, 19 year old who is doing A-levels and going on to university and I know I, my older son is exactly the same as this. He wasn't living independently at the age of 20. No. And actually, vast majority of normal, yeah, families have got young people living with them now till 23, 24. And yet our most vulnerable kids, society's most vulnerable kids, are put into this situation. Yeah. And there are there are ways of solving it. But, of course, it involves changing legislation. It's unbelievable. So... Keeping families together and working out how to keep young people within the family home has to be a priority. Because if they can survive those 17 to 24 years, which we all know are incredibly vulnerable times for anybody, let alone being, you know, having survived trauma and dealing with mental health issues and that kind of thing. Yeah. If we can do that, then we can prevent those young people falling into those dangerous situations that I described before, but also dodgy relationships, domestic abuse and violence, um, early pregnancy or early family making creates the next generation of the toxic trio. Right, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, that's really well put. And you obviously understand this incredibly well. And and so what are your solutions? I mean, I guess sort of on a personal level, but also on you know a government level. Um, on a on a government level, let's let's deal with that thing. Basically, um, young people are recognised as being um, eligible for an EHCP up until the age of twenty five. The same needs to happen with disabled children and young people in terms of um, universal credit and um, family benefits. Yeah, which will which will actually provide the finances. A really simple thing. I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, carer's allowance, apart from the fact that it's an appalling, appallingly low, low amount of money, yeah, um, actually only pays for national um, class two national insurance, which means that when you finish caring, if you have a partner who is already earning, you're not entitled to unemployment benefits. It's means tested, not contributions based. And that's wrong as well. Yeah. Because it means that you don't, you aren't even entitled to job seekers allowance when you come off unless your husband is or partner, husband, wife, whatever, is earning under the limit. So those are two really practical things that could happen for a start. Yeah. Um the work that we do with Restitute, because because 
we're working with families sometimes where the child is six or seven where this has happened you know maintain those relationships and those bonds support the parents particularly the mothers boost their self-esteem reduce the stigma shame blame um, that they feel reduce the isolation um, and just support those relationships hugely so that so that there isn't this falling out that happens in um, late teenage years early adulthood and if there is do everything you can even if the even if the two people are living in separate environments do everything you can to make sure that that the relationship continues even if they're not living in the same place um one of the things that really supported us as a family was that Sarah managed to secure a place at Fircroft College which is a residential further education college where they it's in Birmingham um, and she managed to do an access to higher higher education course it wasn't a smooth process and I'm not going to say it was she got through that course by the skin of her teeth and I ended up staying in a hotel for six weeks during various different bits to support her mental health and being up there but it was an environment where she was actually doing something positive with her time so she was in education um she had somewhere to stay she had a routine she had other people around around her to support her right um so that really helped um but hang on actually hang on um if you'd said to me i mean at the age of 19 my daughter was at risk of sexual exploitation she was taking drugs she was taking alcohol um she was so much at risk um and she wasn't living in our family home and we just hung on um and hung on which is incredibly difficult to do and i'm not going to pretend it wasn't because it nearly broke up our marriage my marriage right but we did it and we did it on our own right because we didn't have restitute around at the time um but it but the earlier you start with building those relationships and some of the psychoeducation and some of the parenting skills that you can offer to families, like the insight, like, you know, you really need to watch the alcohol thing in the house. You know, you don't necessarily want to be um, following the same path that you would with, with a child who hasn't survived trauma, for example. You know, my family background was that by the age of 15, you were allowed a glass of wine with a meal. In retrospect, I would not have had any alcohol in the house at all. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I would have stopped. I would have been much more fierce in retrospect about education. I would have pulled her out much earlier um, because it was just too much and it was making things worse. But I came from one of those backgrounds where it was just you know, you must get an education, you know, everybody goes to university in my family. And so there was this expectation that, and that expectation was backed up by the schools because the schools were saying, oh, the best place for this child to be is in school. Actually, in retrospect, no, it wasn't. Yeah, and and there was, you know, there are so many opportunities now for children and young people to catch up way beyond the age of 18 way beyond the age of 16 
Um, and we need to be much more mindful about saying what this young person needs is a completely different curriculum. Right. Yeah. That maybe doesn't involve school or involves other things that are actually going to nurture and support them because you can catch up on school, but you it takes such huge amounts of effort to restore self-esteem, poor mental health, um, lack of confidence, anxiety, PTSD. These things take time to recover. Mm. I often I often compare it compare it nowadays to if your child had a really serious physical illness, would you be dragging them out of bed at eight o'clock in the morning to catch the school bus? No, you wouldn't. Yeah. But at the same time, kids need routine and structure. And yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what's the alternative? It's interesting, isn't it? Because you don't want them just to lie in bed all day either. So, no, yeah. absolutely. So that's why I'm suggest. That's why I'm saying an alternative curriculum that doesn't involve putting them in a situation where they're so vulnerable with so many other children, with um, um, such long days. Yeah. Um, often our children are travelling an hour to school especially in our own in the rural areas of Norfolk and Suffolk, they're traveling an hour to school and an hour on the way back. What can we do to reduce that time? What can we yeah. do to, um, and I fought and fought and fought and ended up getting a taxi, um, getting a taxi for my daughter, which without any other kids on it. So they literally just took her there and got her back again, which reduced the, the journey from an hour and a half on the bus or on a, on a, taxi with loads of other kids to about 20 25 minutes right yeah yeah um but you need to you need to build that structure from at home so so basically when child is is in the early days of recovering from trauma you know the and this would have helped us as well the three meals a day the exercise the establishing really good sleep patterns um alternative groups of friends outside of school so that if things went pear-shaped at school there was always another group of friends that they could be involved in and that they had a passion with a hobby or an activity right um if that if if that tries to make sense and maintain the relationships between the siblings because of course the siblings often get forgotten about my son ended up bringing himself up from the age of 14 oh bless him right yeah yeah he's a really good cook now <laughs> But, you know, he still has to remind himself to clean his teeth because those times when I was supposed to be doing the, the have you cleaned your teeth, have you had a shower, I just wasn't there. I just mm. was not available to him because I was trying to keep his sister alive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you, you've, you've had 100 people that you've been supporting over the last couple of years. Yeah. Have, you, have you found that? A cathartic process for yourself and her um um or is it totally exhausting how how are you coping with that <laughs> that's probably a bit of both um i think it's the the cathartic the cathartic bit bit and the bit that causes me um that gives me great personal pleasure is that until we started at restitute and Please believe me, I'm I'm not the only person in Restitute. I'm the you know I'm the person who does the podcasts and pitches up occasionally on the media and does talks and things like that. But there are nearly twenty of us now. Yeah, I mean it. I've gone from I've gone from one man and a dog to 
um, we've got 14 people on our books, plus we've got a board, plus we've got about another 10 volunteers who are involved in service development now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it definitely isn't just me. The thing, the thing that pleases me is that I used to, two years ago, I used to explain what a third party victim of crime was or explain about carer trauma. And people would say, I literally had no idea. Um, now, that's still quite a lot of the case about how traumatic it is caring for someone who has survived trauma. But I don't feel that it's a total shock anymore. I, the awareness of the industry that goes around caring for someone who has survived significant crime or trauma, there's a growing awareness. Yeah. Um, um, it's no longer a surprise to people. And I think that is directly as a result of the work that we've been doing at Restitute. Um, it is completely exhausting. I'm not going to pretend it isn't. Um, it's re- It makes me really anxious. We're currently having to um, operate a small waiting list, which I absolutely hate um, because we've had a, a big influx of, of clients requesting support or being referred for support. Um, and I know how long it takes for people to actually say, yeah, OK, I'll trust I'll trust somebody enough to ask for some support because you do become very fierce and very isolated and think, actually, I'm just going to deal this with this by myself because I've right. seen the looks that I get, you know, um, I've seen the judgment. I've seen that those kinds of things kind of face it again. Um, the complexity of need that we are supporting for some people finding out that your child or your partner or um, somebody that you love has survived a serious crime, sexual abuse, sexual violence, domestic violence, or, you know, other violent crime, um, is the single worst thing that's ever going to happen to you or your family. And it may be for have been that way for generations. But for some families, this is just yet another thing that is coming on top of their already difficult, complicated um, lives. Right, yeah. Um, And, you know, we've got carers who were already caring for somebody who had a significant physical illness or disability and who blame themselves because because their eye was off the ball or... A, another family member was providing care to their children and took advantage of that vulnerability to then abuse their children. Oh, yeah. Um, and that is really complex. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and hugely damaging, obviously, for everybody concerned. So, yeah, the complexities that we deal with are, are massive. Do um, you get very involved in the sort of police side of things on the crime side of this of this are you um supporting people through court cases we may be we may be supporting someone whilst a court case is waiting but the is for service and the id for service independent sexual violence advocates independent domestic violence advocates and they are that is if you like their number one role is to make sure that that victims are supported through the police and criminal justice system and they do a fantastic job but we may be supporting a family member whilst that is going on because of course of the emotional damage that that can cause yeah justice is great for society 
justice punishes or um, rehabilitates the offender. But anyone who thinks that justice is going to give victims or their families any sense of closure, any sense of actually feeling like justice has been done, unfortunately, is often really sadly mistaken. Right. And that's that's down to a couple of things. First of all, because one day the perpetrator is waiting to be sentenced and the next day they're in prison. That doesn't actually change the life of the people who have survived the crime and those who are looking after them. But the other thing about the whole thing is that because of the evidential proof, level of proof that's required in these kinds of crimes, so many cases don't don't get anywhere near a court. Right, yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it certainly doesn't mean that there's just not enough evidence. And what I say to a lot of my families is that you have to look at that as being something that is happening on the side, yeah? Yeah. And it's not actually based on the truth. It's based on what evidence can be proved. It's a bit of a game, and it's a game that actually doesn't involve you. It's about two groups of people testing what evidence can actually be proved. So if the case doesn't get to court that doesn't mean it didn't happen. In fact, thinking about court as being, or a sentence as being the benchmark of whether something happened or not is really, really not healthy at all. No. As far as I'm concerned, if someone has disclosed this, it happened. Right. Lots of parents um, really struggle with the fact that when they first find out, yeah, their knee-jerk reaction is she can't be telling the truth or he can't be telling the truth. Really? Yeah. Yep. It's a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. It was my knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Because when you think about it, you've got two choices here. Either your child has been sexually abused or they're a liar. Which one would you prefer? Right. Yeah. (laughs) The liar, I guess. Absolutely. (laughs) You know. You've been given a choice between two two things, you know. Something absolutely horrific has happened to your child or for whatever reason they've decided to make this story up. It's yeah. much easier to live with the, for whatever reason, my child has decided to make this up. Yeah. I never yeah. thought of it like that before, but that's actually a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is why a great many, peer, pe- great many parents, their knee-jerk reaction is, she can't be telling the truth. You can't be telling the truth. This can't be true. Yeah. yeah to and it's nothing to do with what they actually think. It is just the choice, Hobson's choice. Mm. You know, which one would you yeah. rather? Yeah. And then they feel hugely guilty and ashamed and as if they've let their child down. Yeah. Um, when they actually come to realise. But I think people need to realise that 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 is a trauma response, you know? Yeah very natural I'm sure you're right um and how is your daughter now and how does she feel about what you're you're doing my daughter is um really very well um she has very recently moved into um her own place it's about 10 miles away from here she is still disabled both physically and mentally by what has happened to her 
she has developed um, a seizure disorder, pain disorders, Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, the PTSD. um, But one of the most appalling things that came out of all of this is that Sarah had been bloody hard work, I'm going to put it in the very technical term, since she was two years old. And I had another child who was three years older who was actually completely manageable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'd been waving Sarah in front of pediatricians and health visitors and GPs since she was about two and a half. Ah. And, you know, saying there is something not right with this child. Yeah. When she was 21, she finally had a diagnosis, was given a diagnosis of ADHD. Oh, right. But of course, 15, 16 years ago, however long ago, it was 20 years ago now, really, girls didn't get ADHD. And the behaviours that the girl that girls displayed as part of ADHD were completely different to boys, of course, because she wasn't, you know, it was completely different. It's a completely different set of criteria, if you like. Right. Um, and I have to live with live with the fact that the relationship between Sarah and I was extremely fractious from about the age of three. It was incredibly difficult to have normal attachments with her because her behaviour was so unpredictable and so challenging right from the age of three. Right. Um, that there were problems with the attack with attachments. Now I'm a layperson, so don't expect me to explain all the ins and outs and everything else of that. I just know that that was a problem. I'm yeah. from a primary school teacher, um, not a nurse. Um, and one of the things that came out of that is that because the attachments were poor, she had very low self-esteem. She had um, poor relationships um, with her peers and other people. Right. And I have to live with the fact that that missed diagnosis, not misdiagnosis, that missed diagnosis um, made her vulnerable, made her right. vulnerable to abuse and to exploitation um, because, because she didn't have those that, that really, really strong attachment to me and to the rest of our family because her behaviour was so challenging. We didn't right. get the same, she didn't get the same nurturing that her brother did. And right. I have to live with that because I wonder all the time if I'd fought more when she was much younger, but I don't see how I could have fought. Well, you, not... said, you strike me as somebody who fought, who has fought a lot, Kath, so I don't think that you could have done any more. Um... No, but it is my big, it is, it is, if I have to say, what do I regret? Right, yeah. It was that the diagnosis of ADHD was yeah. not made at that point. Yeah. But then I have to be realistic and say, would I have been convinced by that diagnosis? Mm. Because just as professional in the medical field um, weren't really picking up on it, neither were parents. And I was educated enough and I was a primary school teacher and I was quite sceptical about ADHD in boys at that point, let alone in girls. Right. So yeah. I don't know how uh, how I would have reacted. Um, so I really, really hope. It, you know, you said earlier on about changing the world. Please check girls' ADHD because those attachments and those poor self esteem, um, lack of self worth, um, re- challenges with relationships, anxiety, 
which can mask as other things, could well be ADHD, could well be medicated, could save them from being vulnerable to abuse. Um, I wanted to move on to Aspire, which is one of the studies that um, we are currently making at NSFT Research. So just to say a bit more about Aspire, it's it's supporting young people and their families who have adverse childhood experiences, um, which are also known as ACEs. And I just wondered if you could say a little bit about how you've been involved with the study. Bryony G invited me to be on the steering committee when she found out about lived experience but also about working with Restitute and I was really pleased to be involved because Restitute is fairly groundbreaking. We're the only organisation in the country that offers this level of support and this tailored intervention type support to families. So we've always been really interested, you know, I said about making sure that we had evidence and those kinds of things. So actually being involved in anything like that was was really important to me. And so being on the steering committee for that group was, I hope for the for the research project particularly was useful because I was able to bring in the perspective of whether it was feasible for parents to deliver an intervention, yeah. what trauma that was likely to cause for them, right. um, how would you screen for whether it was an appropriate time um, for parents to deal with it what kinds of trauma might this work with and what are you going to do if you've got multiple trauma so first of all I was really interested to be involved in just exactly what a what a research project is and how a research project works because I think a lot of us have got an idea of what it was based on our GCSE science project and it's right. a hell of a lot more complicated than that but most importantly it was it was the opportunity to be able to bring the voice of parents and parents who have been traumatised by their caring experiences or who are living with secondary trauma. And parents are often living with both because they're traumatised by what has happened, they're traumatised by the caring responsibilities and the things that they see. And then they're re-traumatised by society um, because of the shame, blame, judgment, stigmatisation, daily fail stuff that happens about where were the parents, which is just so insidious Mm. so there's so many layers of um of of trauma happening there um so it was really important to me to make sure that that came in because there's an awful lot of expectation now on parents to be able to deliver interventions and to be able to support their child but actually we need to make sure that we support the parents so that they can support the child yeah um and 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 so that was why I was really keen to be involved. And how are you feeling about Aspire? Did, did you do you think it's going to be an effective intervention? I do, and the attention to detail and the care and the ethical and the moral um, considerations about how, where, why, and when has been absolutely fascinating to see. You know, and I really do think it's going to be a useful a useful intervention. But I'll bring go back to what I always said as part of the steering committee is that we need to be aware of the level of trauma that some parents are living with. And we can't use we can't. I would I would never like to see Aspire being the first thing that people are offered. There needs to be an evaluation before you start um, assuming that that this is going to be the good fix. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we need to be we need to be screening families for this being potentially a positive 
and most appropriate rather than going right well everybody starts off with this and if it doesn't work we'll then we'll then bring in clinicians right. you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> um i think we've all i think we've all seen that kind of model happen before with not such good of good impact but i'm pretty confident um Bryony is quite fierce sometimes oh good about about what she won't allow to happen right um um, um, and she doesn't look like she's going to be fierce like that but (laughs) i you know i have every faith um that she will that she will ensure that that the research project that she's that she's worked on as it begins to become more um, more widely used once it's finished in the research stages is used in the way that it was meant to be designed yeah yeah she would have been that um and as far as trying to be a truly co-produced project if that's something that we're really strong on at nsft did you feel like or do you feel because it's still ongoing that it is getting that kind of co-production value that that you would hope for absolutely um i think i mean there were on that steering group there were there were people who had enough letters after their name to um start a new alphabet but there were also people like me who were really just bringing the lived experience there were but but again i was bringing lived experience of not only myself but also having supported a lot of families through it but there were people on that on that steering group who were just parents of trauma survivors and there were kids as well um so yeah it felt very inclusive um and what i what i really liked about it was that the young people that were on that that were on either on the steering committee were safely supported um so that they weren't exposed to any further trauma that might traumatize them but making sure that their views and their feelings were captured and heard by the adults in the room but that the adults were very mindful of the fact that although this person had an equal state um, place at place at the table and an equal vote, they were still only eleven. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's good. And the other thing that we're very excited about is that Restitute is part of our researching together network, which is a new enterprise that we're trying to get more involved with the community and to um, hear what research needs to be done and to feel like yeah we're working together I wonder like you know what you think is important for a network like this with you know with the mental health trust I think there's an awful lot of work going on in the VCSE the voluntary social enterprise charity community sector that has been taken for granted um, for far too long, there are things that are done out in the out in the, I, I nearly said the real world, which was a bit rude, but you you know what I mean out in out in the community yeah that is really effective that is really impactful that there's no research behind at all right yeah there are an awful lot of but equally there are a lot of things that we've always done because we've always done them with no basis in fact either yeah. If our healthcare is going to be delivered across the whole system and the whole system is considered to be primary stakeholders in this, then the research that we do of services or of organisations or of systems or of processes needs to have 
um, equality right the way across the piece. Yeah, hopefully we'll be fulfilling some of that and starting to talk a lot more between, you know, different groups and sharing our like research and also doing more research that's relevant to people. But anyway, Kath, I'm going to finish this now because you've given me far more time than, than I'd asked for. But um, it's really lovely to talk to you and thank you so much for sharing so much. And I will share in the show notes um, all the information about Restitute and um and the Researching Together Network and everything that we're doing. So thank you so much, Kath. Thank you. It's been really interesting being able to talk to to you today. And um, I can't wait for it to come out. Thanks for listening. Please do subscribe. It's free and means the podcast will automatically download every fortnight. Do rate and review Mental Health and You and follow our social media accounts that are all in the show notes. And more than anything, look after yourself.